I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, May the 4th be with you, 2021. Coming up, it is our annual graduation special, where we invite graduate students who recently completed or soon will complete their PhD theses to explain their dissertation work, what it means, and where it might lead them. Our guests are Kate Doubleday, Zach Ulibari, and Dr. Jason Silver. Spring has sprung in Boulder, and that means graduation and How on Earth's annual graduation special. In last year's graduation show, I remarked how, because of the restrictions due to COVID-19, graduation ceremonies around the world had been canceled or changed from the massive in-person gatherings to creative alternatives. However, I optimistically expected that by the time of this year's graduation show, we would be back to normal with in-studio interviews and in-person graduation gatherings. Well, not so much. In Boulder, the University of Colorado graduation commencement ceremony will be live-streamed this week on Thursday, May 6th at noon on the university's website. These How on Earth annual graduation special shows are a celebration of young scientists and engineers who have gone the extra mile and the extra many years beyond their undergraduate degrees by continuing their studies in graduate school. My guests today are Kate Doubleday in the Department of Electrical, Computer, and Energy Engineering, Dr. Jason Silver in the Department of Chemical and Biological Engineering, and Zach Ulibari in the Department of Physics. These are three young scientists who will soon defend or recently have defended their PhD theses, and they have joined us to talk about their thesis research, their grad school experiences, and what they have planned next. We'll start with Kate Doubleday, whose thesis title is Development and Application of Probabilistic Solar Power Forecasts for the Day-Ahead Unit Commitment. My thesis focuses on incorporating more renewable power and solar power in particular into our electricity generation. So renewable resources like wind and solar depend on the weather. So obviously there's some inherent variability in their output as conditions change. And there's always some uncertainty because we need to make some decisions based on forecasts. My thesis tackles that problem of variability and uncertainty in two ways. And the goal here is to help support power system operators to plan around that variability and uncertainty. So the first step in this thesis is focusing on very high quality forecasts for what we think solar power is going to look like over the next day or so. I've developed a new statistical method that characterizes the uncertainty in that forecast. So for example, we think the power available tomorrow at 3 p.m. will be six gigawatts, but it could be as high as seven and it could be as low as three. And we know that with 95% probability. The second step in the thesis focuses on developing a new scheduling tool to help power system operators plan for that amount of power we think will be available. 
So this tool automatically interprets that uncertainty information to decide what other generators should be online to complement solar power. So the goal of those two tools is to help power system operators use a much larger percentage of solar power while still providing inexpensive and reliable electricity service. These predictions, are they regional? Are they national? Are they very specific to just one power station? What's the scale? That's a great question. So we're actually looking at a couple of different scales. So the first scale is the individual power plant. So this is one location, but it might be many megawatts of power that that one location is providing. It's also useful for a system operator to understand what's going on over their entire service territory. So for my thesis in particular, the case study that we're looking at is Texas. So we're looking at what's the solar generation available over the footprint of Texas. But again, that's also tailored to the specific system operator. So in some cases, that might be state level. In some cases, it might be a couple counties, sort of depends. This takes into account what the weather forecast is going to be. That's the obvious thing that comes to mind. But what are some of the other parameters that have to be taken into account here? Yeah, so they're both dynamic and static parameters. The dynamic ones are the ones you just noted, so the weather forecasts. And then there's static parameters about the power plant itself. What type of panels do they have installed? What type of inverter do they have installed? That sort of metadata also gets incorporated when we transition from a weather forecast to a power forecast. Would it not necessarily be just one power station, but distribution among a grid? Say you're going to have a real sunny day at El Paso and a rainy day in Houston. Is this being used to do balancing and transmit and share power so that you have what you need for either air conditioners or what have you? Yeah, so that definitely gets taken into account in these the area total forecasts. And what you're alluding to there is actually a phenomenon that we call geographic smoothing. So it's actually a benefit of when you're aggregating solar power or wind power over a large territory, the small disturbances that are quite dramatic at a single plant level or you know, on a rooftop level for your own system, they get smoothed out when you're adding those up over many plants. And so it's actually a benefit for forecasting because in some ways it's less variable when you have uh, more plants together. Sure. So what took you into this topic? You know, what about it interested you that said, that's what I'm going to do my thesis about? I think that's a bit of a, a dance, both in terms of personal interests and also, you know, some of the serendipity of when and where you find yourself. I knew that I wanted to be working in renewable power. So I, I was in this program. I knew that I wanted to be, you know, as an electrical engineering had decided the advisor that I wanted to be working on. And then it kind of becomes a dance of what projects does that person already have available? Do I need to go find my own project or can I insert myself in what they already have going on? You know, I knew that I wanted to be working in either renewable power directly or in some of the supporting technologies that help incorporate renewable, more renewable power. So this solar project felt like it already sort of fit the parameters that I was looking for. And my advisor already had something going, so I was able to just jump right in. Yeah, a lot of people who haven't gone to grad school may not realize sometimes the thesis depends on what advisor is available and what project they have that someone else isn't already working on. So it's a mix of what the student is interested in and just what happens to be available, what's funded. <laughs> yeah, that's how, it, that's how it was for me. Well, let me go over to Jason now. Jason Silver, I have as the title of your thesis, The Role of Stiffness and YAPTAZ Mechanotransduction During Muscle Regeneration. So how did I do? Did I pass? 
Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I just we abbreviate it as YAP and TAS. I, uh, yes. I I was wondering if it was. There's some good acronyms and words there that I don't understand. So mm-hmm. unpack that for us. Yeah. So uh, for my PhD, uh, I really focused on muscle regeneration. And uh, skeletal muscle is a very unique tissue because skeletal muscle is like composed of these muscle fibers that have many nuclei, but they can't actually divide. And so when people are walking around exercising, you frequently expose your muscle and stresses will cause damage. So what you need is a stem cell called muscle stem cells that are then able to actually help uh, repair and regenerate muscle so that you can continue to use it over time. What I've been particularly interested in is several properties of the muscle change over time. And one of them is actually like the mechanical properties or the stiffness. So how hard is your muscle? And so that actually changes after not only exercise, but also during aging. And so I wanted to do is understand exactly how those physical properties changed the muscle stem cells ability to be able to regenerate the muscle. And in order to do that, we actually can't really control the mechanical properties in a human or in a mouse. So what we need to do then is we actually create a physical environment using these hydrogels, which is kind of like a mesh network that you can precisely tune the mechanical properties. And from there, we can then grow our cells or muscle stem cells on these hydrogels or these networks. And then we can actually see how their behaviors respond and do changes of the mechanical properties. And from there, I was able to determine some of the actually important cellular signaling pathways that help regulate the muscle stem cells response to changes in mechanical properties. I know from working out, you know, I always hear you want to break down muscle to build up muscle. So this is part of the process that you're looking at. Yeah. So when you are working out, what happens is you're actually creating like micro tears in these muscle fibers. And what happens is, is the stem cells will then sense that there's damage or there's some sort of cues in the environment. They'll then migrate and proliferate. And so they, meaning they divide in order to create more cells that can then fuse in and actually repair the damaged myofiber. And what we found then is the muscle stiffness actually increases right after you work out. So I think everyone can appreciate when they lift dumbbells, you feel their muscle, it feels more taut. What we found is that the stiffness will actually regulate the cell's ability to not only migrate, but also divide. And so that ultimately then can change how the cells can help regenerate the muscle. So the stem cells are separate groups of cells that are mixed in with regular muscle cells. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. So they're called, their older name for them is actually called satellite cells. So they're actually just these small little rare cells, maybe one out of every thousand nuclei that uh, reside on these muscle fibers. So directly touching the muscle. So the environment you're talking about is the other muscle cells around these stem cells. And since you can't exactly do testing easily in a person after they've worked out, you've created a material that mimics the surrounding muscle and then see how these stem cells behave. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, The one thing is there's actually like an extracellular protein network called the ECM or extracellular network that actually completely encompasses the muscle fiber and the muscle stem cells themselves. And so that actually helps you dissipate mechanical forces and just the actual cross-linking of this protein network actually imparts mechanical properties to the muscle. And so as people actually age and their muscle becomes more fibrotic, or even if you have scar tissue, you get more proteins in that extracellular space. And that actually also, again, increases the stiffness as well, Hmm. which then in turn actually regulates how the muscle can regenerate. What is the YAP and TAS mentioned in your thesis title? Starting 
I would say in the mid 2000s, bioengineers were culturing cells on these surfaces with mechanical properties closer to what we see in tissue. So typically everyone grows cells on plastic with the stiffness is on the order of megapascal. So almost 10 to the six order magnitude while everything in the human body is on the order of 10 to the three. So it's completely not physiological. And what people have found is that there are a lot of different cell responses when you grow cells on these surfaces with tissue-like mechanical properties. And Yap and Taz are two proteins that actually change their localization within a cell depending on the substrate stiffness. So they function almost as a rheostat. So they can actually determine how the cell responds based on the stiffness. So what happens is on stiffer surfaces, Yap and Taz are actually able to translocate and actually enter into the nucleus, where they then can change transcription and actually impart changes into the cell. On softer substrates, what happens is they're actually excluded from the nucleus, so they're actually just in the cytoplasm or in the regular area of the cell, where they then can no longer actually change transcription. And so what happens is, is you can actually change the mechanical properties in real time and actually watch these two proteins directly translocate into nucleus. Big picture, what might this lead to? Will I feel better after I work out if I take some new medication? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so so what we found is that these two proteins, Yap and Taz, are absolutely fundamentally required for muscle regeneration. And so finding a way to specifically target them could actually help promote regeneration after an injury. Or conversely, like during aging, I think because the muscle stiffens over a long period of time, you might be exposed to the stiffer environment, which actually overactivate these cells over time, which would then hurt your cells in the long run. So maybe in that sense, you actually might want to deactivate those proteins and potentially preserve and prolong your muscle stem cells so that you could actually have better regeneration in your older years. That, that sounds like a good deal to me. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Jason Silver. And now our next guest is Zach Ulibari, and his thesis title is Experimental Studies of the Genesis and Detectability of Complex Organic Molecules and Isotopic Ratios in Hypervelocity Impact Ice Spectra. All right. Was that, was that good, Zach? Yeah, that sounds about right. All right. So tell me what that is. Cool. So I work on East Campus at the University of Colorado Dust Accelerator. Um, and so we have our own building over here and we have the only accelerator of this type in the world which launches microscopic particles. So uh, on the order of a micron in diameter, which is a millionth of a meter. And so we can launch these particles at velocities of up to tens of kilometers a second. And that's, the, that's a relevant velocity for space dust. And so that's actually what we do is we study how space dust can interact with all sorts of stuff in the solar system, whether it's spacecraft that we send out there or um, moons that don't have atmospheres or even actually atmospheres itself. So um, one of the projects we have here, for example, is a gas target where we actually create shooting stars in the laboratory by simulating how these dust particles strike the upper atmosphere. What I do, though, is I grow ices of various chemical compositions and then I blast it with dust coming from this accelerator. And I look at the types of chemistry that are produced in this impact process. And we can do all kinds of stuff with this. One obvious thing is that if you have an icy ocean world, like say Europa or Enceladus, Europa being a moon of Jupiter and Enceladus being a moon of Saturn, both of which have crusts of ice on the outside covering a, a liquid water ocean, 
what we can do with this is we can study how does the dust impact on the surface of this moon change the chemistry of that surface over time. Can you break down complex organic chemistry or can you possibly create it from basic building blocks? And so we can look at how does this change over a very long period of time. But the other thing is that icy ocean worlds are also very interesting because of that one magic word, ocean. They have liquid water there. And that means that they're the best candidates for life here in our solar system if we wanted to go looking for extraterrestrial life. And so in particular, here at the University of Colorado, we're building this instrument, which is called SUDA or the Surface Dust Analyzer. And that's going to launch on the Europa Clipper um, in probably three years. And what SUDA does is it flies by Europa at about five kilometers a second. And it picks up all kinds of these icy dust grains that get kicked off of the surface or potentially even directly from the subsurface of the uh, icy ocean world. And it studies the chemistry. And so what we can do then is without having to land, simply by flying by, we can actually study what the chemistry is with the same kind of accuracy that we could actually do if, if in many cases is if we landed, because we can study the chemistry directly as opposed to having to bounce something off of it or look at something like, say, infrared. And so what I do then is I use the same type of method that this SUDA instrument uses to study this kind of impact process. And I say, okay, so what kinds of chemicals can SUDA actually detect in these icy dust grains that it scoops up? And the most important ones for a lot of these is, of course, biosignatures. So what if there are actually signs of life in these icy dust grains? What if there are amino acids or other types of complex organic chemistry? And so what I'll do is I'll dope my ice with these types of complex organics blast it with the dust, and then look at the impact ejecta plume and see if these complex organics are actually there and can actually be detected by this type of instrument. And I'll give you a hint, the answer is yes. We can, we can see these <laughs> and we, we've started characterizing exactly what some of these more interesting species look like. There's obviously quite a few other things that we can do with this, but those are the most important things. So this is a way of doing a remote observation of the properties of a surface or chemistry or building blocks of life in an ocean world from a passing spacecraft. You're either looking at the debris that's been either blown out or knocked off of one of these icy satellites. So at your lab, you have a hypervelocity gun of some sort that shoots dust into small little ice targets. Yeah, we can launch any kind of dust that's conductive. There's a couple of caveats to that, but that's generally how it works. And so what we do is we put a, an electric charge on this and then we sh uh, send it through a very large uh, electromagnetic potential. And that accelerates these particles to very high velocities. Um, and then, yeah, we shoot it into, into these ice targets that I can create. And then you look at the broken up pieces and see if you can put it back together to what the chemistry perhaps originally was. Uh, absolutely. And, and in particular, one of the things that we actually look at is the, is the mass of these particles. And so if you have this complex organic you know, molecule, it has a lot of different atoms in there, which means it has a significant mass. And so the point is when you're traveling at this very high velocity like SUDA is, it's say five kilometers a second, you're adding so much energy when you impact that dust grain that you might shatter that. And so let's say you had a particle that was 100 AMU in mass, you might break it up and measure one particle that's 75 and another that's 25. And so one of the questions is, is, what if that happens and you actually have these breakup products? Can you still figure out what the original parent molecule is? And the answer is, well, first of all, we can see the parent molecule. But even in the event of breakup, it breaks up in a way that's known, that's understood, and it's studied with amino acids in, in various other contexts. And so even in the event of breakup, we can actually use those breakup fragments as a fingerprint and figure out exactly what the parent molecule was. This is cool because you're doing ground truth testing for an instrument that's going to be on a spacecraft that's going to launch in a few years. Yeah. So 
How did you get involved in doing this type of work? Did you say, I always want to work on dust since you were a kid? <laughs> no, not exactly. Uh, as crazy as that may seem. So I actually kind of fell into this. As an undergrad, I was actually an electrical engineering major. And it wasn't until very close to the end that I realized that my physics classes were the ones that I liked the most. And by then I was too far engaged in, in engineering. And so I actually ended up just double majoring and did that. And then when I came here for an REU, which is a research experience for undergrads. It's kind of like a summer internship. I started working with my advisor, Tobin Munsat, because he worked on Tokamaks, which is for fusion power. And at the time, that's what I really wanted to do. And he simply didn't have, as you know, as you kind of said earlier, he simply didn't have a project available that I could work on with that in mind. And so he's like, but if you come over to East Campus, we can work on this accelerator and you can do this really cool thing. And so I did that and I've loved every minute of it. And so I've never tried to go back. That's an interesting path. And Zach and Jason, you all have some hook into biology of some type, whether it's in the human body or looking for it on other planets. Kate, yours isn't necessarily biology, but I believe you actually started your path in biology. Is that correct? Yeah. So I was in a biology major at a small liberal arts college and an English minor, actually. And it was actually my environmental science classes that interested me the most. Um, in the last year of my undergrad and got me really, really interested in climate change. And I had sort of determined that from a summer research experience as well, that pure science research wasn't really my thing and that something more practical in engineering was. And so I actually then changed direction into electrical engineering. And it took me several years in order to go back to community college and do all of this physics and calculus and linear algebra prerequisites and everything before I ended up at CU uh, in electrical engineering. Well, this is a good story for people who, after they finish their undergraduate, they go, you know, actually, I might be interested in going in this 180 degree direction or something like that. And there's still that option. Uh, one thing I might actually add to that is uh, one of the major people at our lab, uh, John Fontanis, actually was a poli-sci major, did a few years of that, and then came back for his undergrad in physics, and now he's working in this lab. So many paths can lead to unexpected ends there. I know that Kate and Zach, you have not defended yet. Your defenses, I think, are kind of more in late summer or fall. But Jason, you have defended your thesis. Do you want to talk a little just about how fun that experience was? Yeah, it was definitely interesting because you have to establish a lot of different chapters in your thesis. And so for me, I had already published two out of the ultimately four chapters that I kind of, or four different stories that I was putting together. So it really kind of forced me to really work on those last two and really kind of make sure there were complete stories in order for me to finish. So it was definitely quite a big push at the very end. Like it took about almost like a month of just dedicated writing and trying to make sure that all the data was analyzed in the proper way. Actual defense part itself was actually more fun than you would expect. You're just kind of talking about research, which we've been working on for you know many, many years and we're considered some of the most expert people in the field. So in that sense, it's actually not too difficult to sit here and kind of like answer questions and describe what you've done. But really making sure that it's all, you know, bound up really nicely in a book is definitely a daunting task. <laughs> right. It's not it's not great sitting, uh, you know, day one with Microsoft Word open and you're like, oh, God, I have to like somehow get 170 pages written out. But you got to do it. Mm -hmm. But you are not yet done, are you? Uh, you have postgrad plans for more. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm actually an MD PhD student. Um, so here at Colorado, which means I'm doing both a medical doctorate as well as a PhD. So uh, I did the first two years of medical school where you take a bunch of uh, didactic classes, you learn about the human body, and then I transitioned and, um, you know, worked on and now have completed my PhD. And so now I'm actually going back and finishing the last two years of medical school, which starts actually next week. So there I'm going to be more focused on just uh, working in the hospital. You are kind of a team member with, you know, a bunch of different specialties. So I'll finish that in two more years and have a medical degree as well. Well, congratulations and good luck. Kate and Zach, you haven't defended yet, but do either of you have an idea of what your post-defense life is going to be like? I'm not going to med school. (laughs) I'm very happy to be done with classes and nearing the end of my academic career for now. I I don't have a a solid solid plan as yet. I think along with everyone else, I'm really excited to uh, have a little coronavirus break time. So Mm -hmm. I'm planning on defending sometime here in the middle of the summer. And my plan for a little bit is just to enjoy spending some time with my family. My long-term plan is to take a turn into more of like a policy and renewable energy position rather than pure academic research. So that's what I'm looking into next. But um, I'm really looking forward to that break. And I think everyone else is too. Excellent. And what about you, Zach? I won't be defending until probably something like September. It's not quite clear, but um, there's definitely quite a few people at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in the LA area that are interested in hiring me. I, I work with some of them. Um, and so uh, I think that's a pretty strong possibility or there's always a bunch of different places that we could look for, you know, Johns Hopkins University, University of San Diego. Um, and so I'm kind of talking to people at all these different places and trying to figure out what's next. Again, like picking a thesis topic, it's kind of a random walk sometimes where you end up on a postdoc or somewhere after you graduate. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I wish all three of you the best of luck in your post-grad plans. And I just want to thank you all very much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Our guests were Kate Doubleday, Dr. Jason Silver, and Zach Ulibari, graduate students at the University of Colorado at Boulder. And they shared with us some of the details of their dissertation work. The CU Boulder graduation commencement ceremony will be live-streamed this week on Thursday, May 6th at noon. You can watch online at www.colorado.edu slash commencement2021. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Jill Zhang. This week's show was produced by yours truly, Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KJNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth... The KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.